0: All right. Good evening, everyone. Um, We'll be picking up in Genesis chapter 47 tonight. By the time we finish, we'll put the first book of the Bible in the rearview mirror. There are 66 books in the Bible, 39 in the Old Testament, another 27 in the New. Tonight we will finish our first There are 1,189 chapters in the Bible. Tonight we will finish our 50th, so we'll have 1,139 left to go. Um, Just for the sake, in case you were curious, next week being Easter, we will not meet. But the following week, uh, we will start the book of Exodus and continue on our way. So, we are in Genesis chapter 47, and I want to start tonight by just pointing out that once again... If we were the ones telling the story, the story would probably be over. It's pretty easy to see chapters 47, 48, 49, and 50 as an epilogue. If this story was merely about Joseph, we'd be done. Even with the book of Genesis, it can be easy to forget the things that are important to our author that he's going to feel the need to deal with tonight. Loose ends that he wants to make sure and resolve. Main ideas that he wants to make sure and move forward before he opens in the book of Exodus. If you are unaware, the book of Exodus in the Hebrew actually opens with the word and. And so there's one good way to read the book of Genesis, uh, which would be as a prequel to the book of Exodus. And so there are pieces that need to be set in place before the sequel takes place, before the the story of the book of Exodus starts. I just finished binge watching a TV series this week. Um, and it was intriguing because that's what they did in the last five episodes of the season finale they resolved everything except for one thing you were like that's kind of weird and then suddenly they opened up where season two would start I actually thought it was just a one off show it's not apparently Um, that makes total sense there's only money in continuing right Um, you've already got the cow you might as well milk it and uh, so in the same way there are going to be things that are resolved in these last few chapters, and there are going to be tensions left in the text. And so we'll draw those out tonight as we work through the epilogue. Let's pick up in chapter 47, verse 1. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, my father and my brothers with their flocks and herds and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers, he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to his brothers, what is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds, as our fathers were. Now let's just stop there. What we're seeing here is an interview between Joseph's family that's freshly moved to the land of Egypt with Pharaoh's permission, an interview with them and Pharaoh. And you'll notice that um, a, a couple of things here lead to questions Um, the first is that he only brings in half his brothers to the meeting it doesn't even tell us which half we don't know if it's the good half or the bad half you know the attractive half or the ugly half we just know he chooses five of them and he chooses them intentionally I just want you to remember that Joseph has already proven himself to be a brilliant strategist So whatever he's doing here, he's thought about, he's got a plan, and what we're seeing is him, in the same way that his plan has saved all of Egypt, and his plan has saved his family, now his plan is going to be the one that anchors his family in Egypt, and therefore in safety. Um, Then also notice in verse 3, Pharaoh asks what they do for a living, and they answer just as Joseph had instructed them to do. We are shepherds. And we are shepherds just like our fathers were shepherds. I pointed out to you last week that the most likely reason for this is because the Egyptians like to keep their distance from shepherds. And although Pharaoh wants to honor Joseph and Joseph's family by giving him the best of Egypt, Joseph intentionally is trying to put his family in an isolated place. And so Goshen is the target. And so he coaches them on how to go through this so that it comes out with the right consequence verse 4 they said to Pharaoh we have come to sojourn in the land for there's no pasture for your servants flocks for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan and now please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen so they refer to themselves here as sojourners as immigrants but immigrants temporarily now I've never been an immigration officer but it seems to me like they mark they tick all the boxes here that any country wants to see for a refugee effectively they they say hey we we don't need anything we have all of our flocks and stuff we have a job and we're only staying temporarily right these are the things they're doing and it's intentional they're not coming to take Okay, they're very grateful for the salvation that Egypt is offering because there's no grain, there's no, uh, nothing to feed their herds, nothing to feed their families at home, but they make clear here that they're not looking for permanence, that they're not looking for a handout. On the other hand, as an aside, also this in and of itself reminds us of the fact that Egypt is never meant to be their home. And this will recur over and over again tonight. When they say sojourners and when they talk about staying here temporarily, that's because they know that's where God has brought them, but the land of Canaan is still the promised land. And so they explain, and then in verse 5, Pharaoh said to Joseph, "'Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock.'" And so he says, Goshen is yours, and if they're qualified for it, have them watch over my livestock as well. Um, verse 7, Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and stood him before Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Okay. Now you may not have noticed this last week, but Jacob only made it to Egypt in a cart. And we're going to find later that he only shows up at a meeting being carried. Okay. Uh, he is incredibly elderly at this point point. and it's striking here that it says not that pharaoh this king who is literally saving jacob's family not that pharaoh blessed jacob but that jacob blesses pharaoh in fact that's not the only time it's going to say that we'll see it in just a minute here we're starting to see the upper crust the first fruits of the promises that god has made the patriarchs remember uh, abraham was promised that through them all the nations of the earth would be blessed that they would be a blessing to other nations. And we've seen that in places and components along the way. You may remember that Isaac, uh, uh, let's see, what's his name? Abimelech recognizes, right, that there's a blessing on Isaac's life and he's, he's aware of that. Laban recognizes that he's only blessed because of Jacob. Pharaoh rec- recognizes that he's only blessed because of Joseph. Here we see another reiteration of that. And it is a little bit surprising. But notice, just, just think of the context here. Here comes in Jacob, who is incredibly old at this point, and Pharaoh only asks him one question in the interview. This is what it is in verse 8. Pharaoh said to Jacob, how many are the days of the years of your life? He says, how old are you? Verse 9, and Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of my years of sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the year of my life. Now, we have documentation from about this period of time, Egyptian paperwork. We know the ideal of a full life in Egypt was 110 years. That's what they were aspiring to. That's, that's their, uh, their four score, uh, or what do we call it? Three score and 20. We don't say that anymore, but 70 years, right, is the way that we generally think of life as Americans. Um, 110 was their ideal. Jacob is beyond this, Okay. Um, but it's interesting here that when Jacob gives interpretation to his life, how does he see it? As short and as evil. Okay. He says it doesn't really add up to that much. In fact, he says, I haven't attained to the days of my father. If you go back and you check the record, Abraham and Isaac both live longer than Jacob. Um, but on top of that, he says that this life that would have been seen by the Egyptians and even by the Jews as being blessed because of his old age, he says it's It's evil. And no doubt he's thinking about all of the hard things he's been through in his life. The deception of Laban and the fact that he ended up not just with his beloved bride but also with Leah. The conflict that that caused in his family. The fact that he fled from Laban, his father-in-law, right into uh, right into Esau and there was all of that. The fact that he's been limping for the last 70 years. The fact that Dinah, his daughter, was raped and his sons, of consequence of that, wiped out an entire village and put his life at risk. The fact that Joseph, his beloved son, disappeared and he thought he was dead for almost 20 years. All of these components. He looks at his life and he says they've been relatively evil. Okay? Um, and so this is how he sees his days. And then notice what he says, um, continuing, he says, they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the days that they're sojourning. Uh, Let's pick up on that last word. Twice here, he says that his days are sojourning days. He sees himself on earth his entire period as a pilgrim. And in one sense, that's absolutely true, just totally naturally and obviously true. Abraham and his descendants come from Ur of the Chaldees. Canaan now three generations in, they're new, they're immigrants to Canaan, and so that makes them sojourners. But it seems to me that he's pointing to something beyond that. In fact, that's an idea that the author of Hebrews picks up, that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were all looking beyond what their life was to a city, as the author of Hebrews says, whose maker and builder was God, something more permanent. They looked at this life and they said, this is not the full totality of home." It seems to me that Jacob has come to recognize, even if he has to do it with the negativity to call his whole life evil, he's come to recognize what C.S. Lewis says a little bit sweeter. C.S. Lewis says, there are many inns on the way home, but none of them so nice that we would mistake them for home itself. He goes on to say that that's by design, that God gives us glimpses of life as it was intended, but they always come with what Lewis called joy, this recognition that what you're really after isn't here, that you only caught it in passing, that you've only seen the afterglow of what God has planned, but it's a testimony of the fact that the best is yet to come. By using the label sojourner, Jacob is pointing to the finality of his future, the consummation that he is looking forward to. And then as he closes here, he closes the same way he started. Verse 10, Jacob blessed Pharaoh and he went out from the presence of Pharaoh. So he blesses him on the way in, he blesses him on the way out. Verse 11 Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. Now, this is the only place where we get a knowable knowable reference. Goshen isn't a, a region that we can find in ancient and old paperwork. The city of Ramses definitely is. And so this is what gives us a general feel for where they settle. And then verse 12, Joseph provided his father his brothers, and all his father's household with food according to the number of their dependents. Okay. Now that's in contrast with what we're going to read next. The point is that um, the security of Jacob's family during this famine that they're only a few years into and still has many years left to come, uh, it's going to put no more pressure or tension on Israel. Okay. They're provided for directly from Jacob's hands They're they're being taken care of. In contrast, verse 13, Now there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt, in the land of Canaan, in exchange for the grain they brought. So all of Egypt comes to Jacob over and over, year after year, until they've literally run out of funds. Remember, there is no farming going on during this period, so there's no fresh crops There's no profit being made. They're just dipping into their savings and they're running out of money, but the famine hasn't run out yet, okay? That creates the problem that Joseph solves here in verse 15. When the money was spent in all the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, give us food. Why should we die before your eyes for our money is gone? And Joseph answered, give your livestock and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for their horses, their flocks, their herds, and their donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. And so they're out of money, and so he opens up the line of trade, and they trade their livestock for food. Verse 18. When that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, We will not hide from our Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of our livestock are my Lord's. There's nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food, and we with our land will be servants of Pharaoh. And give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, and all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. So all of Egypt comes, they say, Look, Joseph, you have our money, you have our livestock. The famine isn't over. We die without your help. And so at this point, he changes the entire political economic reality of what Egypt is, okay? He turns it into what we would call a fiefdom. He fills the land with serfs. And so instead of free range, individual uh, servants or citizens who are farmers and are on their own, who are merchants and these types of things, they all become farmers of land that now belongs to Pharaoh. And then he explains how that's going to work financially. Verse 23, Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you and you shall sow the land and at the harvest you shall give a fifth, that's 20% to Pharaoh and four fifths shall be your own as seed for the field and as food for yourselves and your household and as food for your little ones. Now, I don't know how this whole situation strikes you. I would just like to, before you're swift to judge and feel like Joseph has taken advantage of these people, I would just like to ask you what you would have done instead. Because I don't think it's as easy as a question as we generally assume that it is. And I'll remind you here that as they're coming out of the famine, it's not just the fact that they haven't had anything to eat, but now they also need seed, because remember, food is what you plant to get more food. They're out of all these things, so the economy has to be jump started. But more important than, than just that reservation to recognize how unique this circumstance is, you know, Egypt before this was not a democracy. So we shouldn't expect this approach to be incredibly democratic. Socialism postdates this mentality by thousands of years. So we shouldn't expect some sort of a socialistic outcome. But I do want you to see how the people saw it. Notice what they say in verse um, 25. And they said, you have saved our lives. May it please our Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. And so they see this as salvation. They see this with gratitude. Now it does create some of the pieces that come into play in the book of Exodus, because who isn't subject to this? Who maintains their wealth and therefore their power, the priesthood? And of course, Pharaoh, who now owns all the land of Egypt, except for what the priesthood owns. okay? This. Con- uh, this cons- Consolidation, there we go, of power and economy into Pharaoh's hands helps shape the Pharaoh that we're going to read about in the book of Exodus. Where we are in the book of Genesis is relatively early in Egypt's history as as a ruling power. And this economic principle that we read about here, with a 20% tax that all people paid to Pharaoh, we have historical record of that for hundreds of years. This becomes the norm. This is what Egypt is at this point, but it's intriguing here that they point out that that begins with Joseph in the time of this famine, and so they say, you have saved our lives, and remember, our author here, that's exactly how he saw Joseph being sent to Egypt, right? Why did he go? To save lives. That's what he told us just a few chapters ago. So verse 26, so Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt as it stands to this day. In the day that these words were written, this policy was still in place. It continues, that Pharaoh should have the fifth. The land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. Thus, Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possession of it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life were 147 years. Okay, so we're finally coming up on the crust of the death of Jacob. Jacob, who's been a part of the story all the way back since chapter 25. Jacob's life takes up half the book of Genesis, more than any other character, which is intriguing to me because he's not necessarily our favorite character. You, you would like to aspire to be an Abraham. You don't generally aspire to be a Jacob. But the focus has been here because Jacob's family is Israel, right? This is the 12 tribes. This is where the focus has been. But before we move in, I just want to mention one other thing. I want you to notice the contrast the author makes in verse 27 between the Egyptians who become servants and Israel who are fruitful and multiplying. Now, oddly, that's going to be terribly reversed in one sense when we get to the book of Exodus. Exodus opens saying, Now there arose a Pharaoh that did not know or literally did not remember Joseph, and he effectively enslaves Israel. And then he goes, They're way too fruitful. They're multiplying too quick. We've got to put a stop to this. That's the tension in the book of Egypt. But what our author wants us to see here is the fact that clearly God is present with Israel. He's provided for and sent Joseph ahead of time so that they have a place, even in the midst of famine, to be fruitful and multiply. And so, it says here that Jacob lived 147 years, verse 29, when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, if now I've found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in the burying place. So here's what he says. He says, Joseph... Put your hand under my thigh. You might remember that symbol. That goes all the way back to what Abraham requested his servant to do. Every time that this gesture is used, it refers to the promises given to Israel. Okay, and so the first one was, put your hand under my thigh and promise to me that you'll go and find a daughter, not of the Canaanites for my son Isaac, but back from our hometown. Okay, and here it's promised me that you won't bury me in Egypt, but that you'll carry my body back to the cave where Abraham, where Isaac, and where Sarah are buried, okay? Back there, bury me in the land of Canaan. Now, why is this such a big deal to Jacob? Who cares where you get buried, right? Jacob does. Why? Because he knows that Israel is the stage for what is to come, and if you will, he's been promised front row seats, and so he's going to go line up in the queue and wait for the doors to open. That's how he sees this act. It's a surprising act of faith for a guy who is now living in Egypt. In fact, it's, it's interesting to me because what we see here is, is more faith-oriented than we usually see in Jacob's life. He is so surrendered to the will of God, he's believing well beyond his death of what God's going to do, and he wants to be a part of it. And so he says, don't bury me here, but promise you'll take me to the land of my fathers. And Joseph responds, he answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. Now, this is a hard phrase. Israel bowed himself on his bed. There's a couple of possibilities. One possibility is that that's how bad his health is, and that's the end of this interview, and he just lays down. Okay? But the fact that it uses the word bow points to something else. It points to the final missing component of Joseph's dreams. Remember, Joseph's dreams pointed not just to his brothers or his brother's sheaves bowing down to him, but the sun, moon, and the stars that even his parents would bow down to him. And it seems like here, Jacob is recognizing what? That his hands and his fate, because he's dying, are in Joseph's hands, right? That his fate is in the hands of Joseph, and he bows down to him, a surprising act in a patriarchal-oriented culture, right? Right? Um, but it's this final piece of fulfillment, and so chapter forty-eight. After this, Joseph was told, "Behold, your father is ill." So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. Okay, so first interview is just Joseph and Jacob. Now a little bit later, and Joseph or Jacob is even worse off. And Joseph hears about it, and he brings his sons at Jacob's request. Both of them, by the way, were born in Egypt. Verse 2, it was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you, and Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me, and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. I will make of you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession.'" And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. And so first he recalls the promises that God has made, that he would bless me, that I would be fruitful, that my descendants would be fruitful. And then he says, now, Joseph, I want to take your two sons and adopt them as my own. When he says, as Simeon and Reuben, he means, as equal inheritors of my inheritance. And so effectively, instead of giving anything to Joseph, he gives a double portion to Joseph's sons, to Ephraim and Manasseh. Now, we've talked about this before. It was tradition in these days that your oldest son would receive double the inheritance of the rest of his brothers, okay? So when Jacob does this, he's not merely bypassing the oldest son for a younger. Jacob has 12 sons, and he gives it to the 11th, the double portion. Okay? He gives this blessing, the one that he fought his brother Esau, that he sold you know, uh, his birthright Uh, that's what we're talking about is this birthright of the double portion. And Jacob says, here's how I'm going to give out my double portion. Your two boys are now mine, and they're each equal inheritors with Reuben and Simeon and all of your brothers. Okay? So, he continues in verse 6, and the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers and their inheritance. In other words, I'm adopting these two. If you have other sons, they're your sons, you give them your inheritance, and he says, also they will share a portion in the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh." And he continues here in verse seven, "As for me, when I came from Padan to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way, where there was still some distance to go to Ephrath. I buried her there on the way to Ephrath. That is Bethlehem. Now why does he add this comment at the end? it kind of bridges two realities. One, why Joseph? And two, why now? And he points to his wife's funeral and he says, the wife that I loved, your mother, she died. And so he's thinking here about his own death as being imminent, about him going the way of Rachel, if you will. And so he wants to do this now. And now we get into the formal practice of it. Verse 8, when Israel saw Joseph's son, he said, who are these? And Joseph said to his father, they are my sons whom God has given me here. And they said, bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now that can seem a little bit weird off of first reading because how does Jacob not know who his grandchildren are, one? Wasn't he just talking about Ephraim and Manasseh too? And aren't they just sitting there in the room? How can he make these promises and then go, now who are these little kids, right? Uh, in actuality, there's a couple of things to keep in mind. First off, look at verse 10. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. Just like Isaac in his old age, Jacob has a hard time seeing. And so it's not really surprising that he needs to affirm or confirm who it is who's standing in front of him. But more important than that is that this, in my opinion, is probably a formal expression of adoption. Have you been to a wedding? We open a wedding with these words. Who gives this woman to be married to this man? Does the pastor not know? Do the people in the room not understand? No, it's a formal practice. When you read this this way, it makes a lot of sense. Listen again. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? And Joseph said to his father, They are my sons, whose God has given me here. And he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. This is probably just a formalized practice of adoption, of of blessing. And so it starts. Now it explains again in verse 10 that the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near and he kissed them and he embraced them. And there's some echoes there of what Jacob did with Isaac. But here there's no deception. There's kissing, there's embracing, there's blessing, there's both sons. We'll even see an elder and a younger one. Jacob is blind just like his dad was, but the deception is missing. But they, all of those things should be in our mind. And so verse um, 11 Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. Okay. So, even that points probably to formal practice. At this time, Ephraim and Manasseh are not little boys. Okay. They're not just sitting on grandpa's knees. If, if the timeline works the way I think it does, we're coming to the end of the famine here. Um, and so, so these boys could be as young as six or seven, but also could be as old as almost 20. Remember that at this point, Jacob is 147. That's 17 years after the famine. Okay. And so they're older. When it says here a reference to knees though, we've encountered this in the book of Genesis and it has to do with adoption. Do you remember what Sarah said to Abraham about his servant Hagar? Let her bear a child on my knees. Adoption. Let me take the child as my own. And so, whatever stand-in version of that happens with adult children has been happening here. And he removes them from that place. And Joseph is so overwhelmed by this that he bows to his father. Just as his father bowed to him just moments ago. So, uh, here's the blessing. So, verse 13 Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand towards Israel's left hand and Manasseh in his left hand towards Israel's right hand and brought them near him. Does that seem overly descriptive? Right, you could paint this accurately. You know where the boys are standing both in reference to Joseph and in reference to Jacob. But I want you to notice that it shows them as it shows it as Joseph steering this thing so that his oldest, Manasseh, is right next to Jacob's right hand and Ephraim to his left. The culture generally honored right-handedness as being more special, more sacred, all of these things. Um, And so the better part of the blessing is the right-handed blessing. Joseph goes, he's the older, he goes here. Now notice what Jacob does. Verse 14, Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And so Jacob, who can't really see, sees these kids steered in, and instead of what you would expect, he crosses his arms and lays his hands on the opposite children's heads. Now, we should be not really surprised by this, because there's been an ongoing pattern. It wasn't Ishmael, but Isaac. It wasn't Esau, but Jacob. Here, it wasn't Judah, but Joseph, and so as it's pushing on, it's not surprising that once again, it's the younger and not the elder. So at this point, all the way through Genesis, we're finally in a place to ask, why? Why in the world is there this constant, repeated reversal? And the clear teaching that's pointed to in the New Testament, specifically in the book of Romans, is that's how God works. His choosing is not based to the standards or to the will of men, and he's trying to lay down a principle here that it's not the greatest or the best or the firstborn or the strongest that I'm going to use. There's something arbitrary in God's choice, at least from our view, right? I don't know how you feel about Jacob versus Esau. Paint it one way, and Esau is kind of an idiot. He doesn't seem to care about spiritual things, and so we can go, Jacob's a better choice, on the other hand, we look at Esau and he 's you know formal and quick to forgive and trusting, and all is forgiven and refusing gifts, and he looks all well put together, and Jacob is a total mess and so it 's a little bit hard to read i don 't want to overplay this, but at its very least this repeated for every patriarch 's children reversal here is pointing to the fact that god 's going to do whatever he darn well pleases okay and so this happens now notice. Remember, this is Joseph the beloved. Notice how he responds. So, well, we've got to do the blessing first. Our, our author doesn't want us get to, to get distracted by what Joseph does, so he saves it here. And so, verse 15, he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, walked. The God who has been my shepherd all my life long lifelong to this day. The angel who has redeemed me from all evil. Bless the boys. And in them, let my name be carried on in the name of my father, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. So he passes on the blessing here. And notice he does it in relatively both and terms, right? There's not a great blessing for Ephraim and a lesser blessing for Manasseh. It's not like when Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau was begging and saying, bless me too. And he says, I've only got basically a half blessing for you. I'm all blessed out but here's the remainders, here's what's left in the barrel, right? That's not really what goes on here, but that shows us how important the right-handed, the physical symbol, symbolism of the right hand was, that the blessing is the same, but one is the right-hand blessing, okay? And so he says this, he passes on this blessing, verse 17, when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him, and he took his father's hand and moved it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. Okay, so it tells us the whole blessing and then we find out that Joseph's not happy and he tries to interfere. Two things. The word there for displeased is deeply angered. It's incredibly strong. He's very upset by this. Second, the word for moved means to grab. Okay, it's a strong term as well. He, he, he's not being gentle at all. He goes, this isn't right at all. And he tries to force his father to go about it right. I just find that to be a striking thing For Joseph, who just got the oldest son blessing, right? Who knows that the birth order can be broken, and yet he still wants the best for his baby. Joseph, who knows that favoritism put him in slavery and sold him away from his family for 17 years, that Joseph is playing favorites. Guys, we talked about how Judah gets around this last time, and what did we see? The only way he gets around it is... Uh, is that he, he basically stops allowing it to change the way he thinks about himself. Joseph here, as much as he would like to say otherwise, is a favorite playing favorites. The cycle in Joseph's family at this point is not broken the way it is in Judas. And the reason I bring that up is because we can be so blind to the way that the way that we vow not to be like our parents, the way that we swear it will be different for us, the way that we can see all of the havoc that the examples before us go through and then not see that they penetrate so deeply they go right into our own hearts as well. It's just just an observation worth making. But notice, Jacob here stands his ground, verse 19, but his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. Yes, he does. He's Jacob, right? He also shall become a people. He also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. And so he says, I know how you feel. I know what you want, but I also know what God is going to do, and he's going to bless Ephraim. In fact, Ephraim's prominence is so strong That after the kingdom splits into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, into the tribe of Judah, that's the southern kingdom, into what we call Israel, the northern kingdom, by the time we get to the prophets, sometimes they just refer to the entire ten tribes of the northern kingdom as Ephraim. That's how much he grows. He grows so much that he's the dominant of all tribes in that half of the nation. Okay, Jacob sees that in advance and he recognizes it here. Verse 20, so he blessed them that day saying, by you Israel pronounce, will pronounce blessings saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. He says, collectively, all the other tribes will see how fruitful you guys will be. And they'll say, may you, my son, my, my son of Judah, may you, my son of Simeon, may you, my son of Gad, may you be fruitful as Ephraim and Manasseh, Okay. Thus, he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I'm about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I've given to you rather than to your brothers one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. And so the last thing he gives here is a little bit of property. And it's from a story that we're not told. He says there's a little slope of land in the land of Canaan that I fought for. And I'm giving it to you, okay? So once again, we would assume the story is over. And if the story was about Joseph, it would be. The blessing is passed on to him. The wording of the blessing for Joseph's sons is the same one that we've seen in Abraham, Isaac. At this point, we'd assume that Joseph is where this line is going, that that's how we would trace the lineage. We would expect that, but once again, the author brings in another meeting, and widens the audience. First, it was just Joseph. Then it's Joseph and his two sons. And now it's Joseph and all of his brothers, chapter 49. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. And so he gathers his whole family together, and he begins to prophesy over them. He says, here's what's coming, not for you, but your children and your children's children. For you, in fact, most of what he says is going to apply to when they leave Egypt, okay? And so he just prophetically lays out the future of all of his children. Now, another thing I want you to notice is that um, when we look at the Pentateuch as a whole, that's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, there are these seams in the story, this is one. The end of Deuteronomy would be the last one. There's a few others along the way. Every one of them is a big block of poetic text. And what's fascinating is all of them, all of them focus in on the future and specifically on a coming king. Okay? There's an incredible book. It's a scholastic read, so reader beware, called The Meaning of the Pentateuch by a guy named He's got a very difficult name. Hold on. John Salehammer. The meaning of the Pentateuch. And what he argues is that the way that these five books are put together intentionally points past their failure, the failure of the old covenant, to the coming of the new. That They're intentionally arranged to show that the best is yet to come, that these things weren't the whole story. That, and, and here's the first exhibit A that he points to, Genesis chapter 49. I told you earlier that the story of Joseph is not really about Joseph. Now, prize, surprise number two, it's not really about Judah. But we'll see that as we go. So he walks through his kids, and here's another thing, just a side note. He starts in order. So we look at the oldest to the youngest. After a while, that starts to break down, and we don't actually know why. Some have reasons for believing so that are, um, are uh, literary structural type things. Could be. Others think maybe this is just how the boys were in the room and he just goes around the room. I would say that's just as likely. But for whatever reason, um, they're not in the birth order. And on top of that, some of them have relatively long sections and some of them are just a couple of lines. What's interesting is that Judah and Joseph are the biggest. And the reason that I mention that is I already told you that Israel, the second half of, of Israel after they split... It gets known as the sons of Joseph, as Ephraim. Judah becomes the name of the other two tribes. And so their prominence in Israel's history is already referenced just in that fact, just in the way they're laid out here. But let's look at them one by one. Verse 2. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power he doesn't say anything surprising there. That's what any father would have in those days said about his oldest son. You're the guy. You're the inheritor. You're the one. You're the first expression of my strength. You are my firstborn son. But then notice what he says next. Verse four, unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed then defiled it. He went up to my couch. Okay, so what does he say here? He says, that was your destiny and it was spoiled because of your behavior. When he says unstable is water, imagine trying to build something on water, right? That's, that's the idea of instability here. And he points specifically to an instance that we were just referred to earlier in the book, that there was an occasion where he slept with his stepmother, where he went in to uh, his father's uh, concubine, Bilhah, and slept with her. So not his mom, but his. His, uh, not even his mom's servant, but, but Rachel's servant, okay? And we find out here that Jacob remembers that. And he sees the entire story of Reuben under this principle. That's just a demonstration of it. And he basically says, because of that, you will not excel. And it's worth pointing out that following, following Reuben's history gets really difficult, Okay. Because there's no hero that we can name from the tribe of Reuben. There's no king or any kings from Reuben. There's no judge in the days of judges from the tribe of Reuben. There's just nothing there. There's no preeminence whatsoever. He continues on and he goes uh, to Simeon. But notice he says Simeon and Levi. He takes the second and the third and he takes them together. And he says this, Simeon and Levi are brothers. They're all brothers, right? What is he saying when he says this? Two peas in a pod. I'm dealing with you together because you're always together, because uh, you're together. And he says, weapons of violence are their swords. Now, in Hebrew, that's a really hard phrase. I want to just point you to one interesting possibility. There are some that argue that when it says weapons of violence there are their swords, that the word swords is actually their wedding plans. Weapons of violence are their wedding plans. I know that sounds totally crazy, but do you remember the story? What he's about to refer to that Levi and Simeon did is they're the ones who orchestrated the wiping out of Shechem because of the raping of Dinah. And so you remember Shechem and his, uh, and his son come and they say, hey, we know we got off to a wrong start, but we want to marry Dinah. And they go, yes, here's the wedding plan. And what is the wedding plan? It's bloodshed, right? So it's probably, at least it's interesting, that may be what it's pointing to. Either way, this is the event. He says, this is the defining event of your life. And so he says, weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul not come into their counsel. Oh, my glory, not be joined to their company. For in anger they killed men. And in their willfulness, they hamstrung oxen. And so he says, these are not guys you want to agree with. They remind us of those in Proverbs we're not supposed to listen to. The ones who plot plots of blood and wickedness right that's he says you should distance yourself from uh, Simeon and Levi and then he says because they killed men and then he says they hamstrung oxen now if you go back and read the story and you look for oxen who have had their hamstrings cut you won't find it okay it just says that they took the cattle as their own as as booty right but I think what it's actually pointing to here is the deception okay what is the ox in those days it's a picture of power Hamstringing an ox makes it worthless, okay? What was their plan with the Shechemites? Have them all circumcised, and while they were still in healing and tender, then kill them, okay? So their violence is not straightforward. It's not courageous. They take advantage. They hamstring them first, referring to this circumcision, and then they kill them, okay? And so he says in verse seven, cursed be their anger for its fierce and their wrath for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. He says because of their behavior, they'll be scattered in Israel. They won't have territory of their own. And that's exactly what happens, but it happens in two very different ways. For Simeon, he kind of just settles with Judah and just, he just spreads across. He doesn't get his own land. He can't conquer it. But with Levi, Levi doesn't get an inheritance because they become the priesthood. Right, And so they don't have territory in Israel. Each territory in Israel gives them a city so that the priests can be scattered around, but they become God's property. And so they're not given property because God is their property, because God is their inheritance. And it's a striking thing because the origin is the same. Where does the lineage of the priesthood point to? A murderer. Where does the lineage of Simeon point to? A murderer and yet one just kind of dissipates across Israel with no destiny and the other graciously is given the priesthood. Now he gets to Judah and Judah has the longest section of all of these here. Notice what it says here. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hands will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Now, when he says your brothers will praise you, he's making a play on words. Praise is Judah's name. And he says, Judah, your brothers will praise you. Now, as an aside, there are only three places in the Old Testament where it talks about praising people. It's interesting. And for the most part, this is the only one that can be seen as a positive. Okay, so this is super unique. But not only that, I want you to notice the last line there of verse eight. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Does that sound familiar? Do you see what Jacob has just done? He takes the dreams of Joseph, and he doesn't apply them to Joseph, he applies them to Judah. You may remember when we were reading through Genesis chapter 22 how Abraham recognized that the sacrifice of Isaac wasn't just about Isaac, that somehow he knew in that day that this was about something still to come, and so he named the place, on the mount of the Lord it shall, future tense, be provided." In fact, we're told later on, so everybody to this day calls it, for it shall be provided. Okay? And so they were all looking forward. Somehow, Jacob understands what's just gone on about jo- with Joseph is not about Joseph at all. In fact, as we'll see in a second, it's not about Judah. It's about something to come. I've mentioned before the concept of typology. Something the New Testament talks about a lot, the fact that God didn't just give prophecies, not just thus saith the Lord and predictions of what he'd do in Jesus Christ, but he also painted pictures. He made types. And what a type is, is a historical person, place, thing, or event that pictures a future reality. It's a living prophecy, if you will, okay? And we talked about the fact that how do you know when a type is really a type and not just something that seems similar i 'll just remind you that some people have stripped the Bible um, of its English, gone back to the Hebrew where there's no cons- or where there 's no vowels, only consonants, and have used that to find Hitler in the Bible, among other things right with the Bible code if you if you 've been around the church long enough to remember that um, by the way, people do the same thing with the works of Shakespeare you make a book big enough, you can find anything you want with enough math um, but But how do we know we're not doing the same thing? How do we know we're not just impressing Jesus on the Old Testament? The two things I pointed you to, and I'll point you to again, is one, sometimes the New Testament apostles just tell us this was a type. The book of Hebrews is basically that, the entire sacrificial system, the temple as it was built, the priesthood, all just a picture of Jesus, all a shadow of things to come. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5 that Adam was a type that what Jesus did is so similar to Adam that Adam prefigured and pictured Jesus. But another element is not just is it mentioned in the New Testament, but honestly, is it seen as such in the Old Testament? And so here we see that Joseph really is a type of Christ and that Jacob understood that. He saw all of this playing out as a parable of what is to come. He didn't just see the future of the tribes, he saw the future of God's plan and he knows it has to do with the tribe of Judah. His fourthborn. Now, notice as well that Judah hasn't lost the right, right? Reuben the firstborn slept with my concubine. Simeon and Levi killed an entire village of people. And so the firstborn value has been just decreasing and decreasing. He gives the lineage to Judah and he gives the double portion to Joseph. Right? We already saw him give the double portion. He splits these two things that we saw in Isaac's uh, story with Jacob and Esau, the birthright and the blessing. And he gives one to one and one to the other. Now, that is not my interpretation. The best commentary on the Bible is what? The Bible. Here's a part of scripture you probably never read because it is literally a nine-chapter genealogy. But there are some prizes inside, it's like Cracker Jacks. We don't really like to eat Cracker Jacks anymore. It's basically flavored cardboard. But there's still a prize inside, and I'm still curious what it is. Listen to First Chronicles chapter 5. And I meant what I said. First Chronicles, the first nine chapters are just genealogy. But tucked right in the middle, in chapter 5, the author of Chronicles is talking about this story right here. And if I can get there... This is what he says. In verse 1, he says, The sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, for he was the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's couch, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the sons of Israel, so that he could not be enrolled as the oldest son. Though Judah became strong among his brothers and chief, or king, came from him, yet the birthright belonged to Joseph. Do you see what he says here? He says, the lineage, the king, the genealogy, that goes to Judah, but Joseph got the birthright, right? Which is the same thing we're talking about, okay? So, back in the book of Genesis, he he takes this dream of Joseph and he says, this dream hasn't been fully and completely fulfilled. This dream is still looking forward. One last point. I just want to nail it down. When we get all the way to the book of Revelation chapter 12, there's a woman who's clothed in the sun, the moon, and the stars, and she gives birth to the Messiah. Okay? It takes this imagery from this dream and ties it directly to the birth of Jesus. Israel, remember, is the sun, moon, and stars, and it brings it forward as well. Okay? And so there's this culmination in these things, but we're not there yet. What we do see in Genesis 49 is that the dream somehow about Judah's descendants, and then let's continue in verse 9. Judah is a lion's cub, From the prey, my son, you have gone up, he stooped down, he crouches as a lion, as a lioness, who dares rouse him? So the next thing is, he says, Judah is like a lion. Now, just an aside, one that we'll unpack in just a moment, David is from the line of Judah. And so when we get to the lion from the tribe of Judah that has to do with the lineage of David, it's drawing right from this imagery. Ezekiel by the way does the same thing in Ezekiel 19 but I don't want to turn there because there's a more important passage that we'll get to in Ezekiel in just a second and so the second thing is he takes this royal picture of a lion and he says that's who Judah is and then notice here's the pivot verse 10 the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples a couple of things here Okay, first off, there's the mention of the scepter, right? That's something a king has. So we're talking about kings here. Second, I want you to notice that it says from between his feet, okay? That has to do with children. That has to do with lineage. A scepter is not something you keep between your feet, right? Not even when you're, you're, you're buttoning your cufflinks and you set your scepter down between your knees. So you can, That's not what's going on here. The picture is to lineage. It's to children. Okay. So the scepter will pass from father to son, it's saying, until, in my version, the ESV, it says, until tribute comes to him. And here we get the hardest Hebrew verse in the entire Old Testament, the one scholars have the hardest time with. What it literally says is until Shiloh comes. Okay. Now here's the hard part. Shiloh is the name of a city, a city that comes later, not spelled this way. Not that Shiloh, okay? Shiloh is kind of close to shalom, right? To this idea of peace, until peace comes. But it's not the word for shalom, and we can't prove the thing before. it. Maybe your verse says, and, and just leaves it open, until Shiloh comes, and so it's just a name, and we don't know what it means, but when he shows up, it'll say, hello, my name is Shiloh. That's one possibility, okay? Another one is what the ESV says, until tribute comes to him. And the reason why people are drawn to that idea is twofold. One, the lineage of that word then is rooted right in Egyptian language. They're in Egypt, kind of makes sense, right? Second, it has a good parallel in the next sentence. Until tribute comes to him and, it continues here, um, and to him shall be, be the obedience of the peoples. The word there for peoples is goyim, the nations, okay? And so, tribute comes from the nations, obedience goes back from the nations. It makes good sense. There's one last possibility here, which is that Shiloh is not one word, but multiple words, and it would be best translated to this, until him uh, whose right it is claims it. And so then it's a reference back to the scepter. The scepter will not depart from Judah's children until the one who it really belongs to comes, okay? Whether it's that one or tribute is, is those are the two most likely. But both of them are obviously messianic. Both of them point to not just a king, but the king. And that's not a Christian interpretation, by the way. The Jewish rabbis, before Jesus were on the scene, saw this verse as being messianic, as pointing to the same one that was promised to David as being one of David's sons. Another thing I want to point out here is that it's not talking about David, and that's relatively clear, because it says the scepter shall not depart from Judah. It's not until David that Judah has the scepter, right? The judges that rule are from all sorts of tribes. We'll come back to them in a second. Moses is what? A Levite. Uh, The first king of Israel, Saul, is a Benjamite, right? But once David takes the throne, he's given the Davidic covenant and your children, one of your children will rule and reign forever, right? And so it begins with David, but the promise is looking past David. The scepter's not going to go away from David until tribute is paid, in other words, until the Messiah shows up or until him whose right it is, until the king of kings, king of kings comes. Now, here's what's interesting. There's a massive interruption in this plan in the Babylonian captivity, okay? There's a point because of Israel's sin where they are shattered and scattered. The 10 tribes to the north are taken off into Assyria and Judah holds out a little bit longer and then they're carried away into Babylon. And so you'd think that's it. Where's the promise now? Who's ruling now? After that point, all the way to the day of Jesus, Israel lives under the thumb of powers. First Babylon, then medio persia then the Greeks, then the Romans. It's just wave after wave of conquerors. And at the bottom of all of those feet is always Israel. So how can we as Christians justify that? It is intriguing. In fact, it's fascinating that Daniel is the advisor both to the Babylonians and the medio persians And guess which tribe he's a part of? Judah and so even there the power of Israel remains in Judah now Ezekiel understands that tension and so this is what he says in Ezekiel chapter 21 and this is why uh, I'm drawn to him whose right it is that version is found in the Septuagint the Greek translation that's how the Greek says this verse and it agrees with what Ezekiel says in Ezekiel 21 I'll just read it to you. Here in Ezekiel 21, in verse 32, Ezekiel's talking about this tension. He's talking about the promises. Back in chapter 19, he talks about both the lion and the vine, the tribe of Judah imagery that we've been looking at. And here in 21, in verse 32, oh no, I wrote the reference down wrong. Either that or my handwriting's just that bad. Okay. I might just have to surrender that. Let me check chapter 20. In fact, let me check my pocket. Oh, let's try 27. That's what I want. In fact, let's double back just to verse 26. Thus says the Lord God, remove the turban and take off the crowns. Things shall not remain as they are. Exalt that which is low and bring low that which is exalted. A ruin, a ruin I will make it. This also shall not be until he comes, the one to whom judgment belongs, and I will give it to him. Okay, the Greek there and the Septuagint are word for word the same in Genesis 49 and here. In other words, what he says is this captivity is permanent until Messiah. Okay, and so this story is moved forward. So let's go back and finish up Judah and we'll look at the other kids. The last image here is the hardest one to handle because it's the most poetic. In fact, if you read the Song of Solomon, this is going to sound familiar in its imagery, which is why it's so hard to understand, because it's so Eastern, it's so foreign to us. And so this is what it says about Judah, about this king, about this coming one, verse 11. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. Let's take that one first, okay? So there's a mule, and it's being tied to a grapevine, okay? Why? Why? Frankly, it's a terrible idea, okay? Because what happens if you put the fruit of your vineyard in front of your pack animal? He eats it. One commentator that I enjoyed put it this way. It's the ancient equivalent of lighting a cigar with a $100 bill, okay? It's just a sign of ridiculous wealth. You don't care that you tied him up and that it's a threat to your crops because you have so much. It's no threat. You're, uh, you're babying your animal. It continues on here, and it says, he has washed his garments in wine and his vestures in the blood of grapes. Now, there is some overlap in the imagery between this and the book of Revelation that I don't want to deny. When Jesus comes, he comes as one in a garment as though it's been washed in blood, okay? As though it's been washed in grapes. He says, why, why is your uh, robe this way? And he says, I've been pressing the wine press of the wrath of God, and I've been doing it alone, okay? That may be what's going on here. But it also may just be another, another thing of wealth. Okay? Wine is a relatively expensive commodity to wash your clothes in. And the point here is not that it's also going to stain your clothes, although that's evident. It's that it's a tremendously expensive practice. Okay? And it continues on and it says next, His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth are whiter than milk. And we still have a hard time with that. We know that at the other time it refers to eyes that are darkened by wine. That means drunk. But that's not what it says here. It says darker than wine and teeth whiter than milk. Probably here, it's just a picture of beauty, attraction, attractiveness, okay? But either way, we have this beginning shaping that began with just the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, the seed of Isaac. Now we discover that that seed will be a king, that he will be a king not only of Israel but of the nations, okay? This prophecy of what God is going to do in Jesus Christ is taking shape. There's more form to it than there was. But Judah's not the only kid on the roster, and so he continues here about Zebulon, verse 13. Zebulon shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships, and his borders shall be at Sidon. Okay, Sidon is the capital of Phoenicia, and so um, what he's saying here is that the territory that will be given to Zebulon will be effectively the Sea of Galilee. So he's not talking about the Mediterranean Sea and ships. He's talking about the Sea of Galilee. And so, for example, if you uh, open up to Isaiah chapter 9, there's a prophecy about the coming Messiah who will come to Zebulon and to Naphtali at the Sea of Galilee, which is quoted by the Gospel of Matthew. Okay? So this is where they settle, around the Sea of Galilee. Verse 14, Issachar is a strong donkey crouching beneath or between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good and that his land was pleasant, so he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. This one's a little bit harder to interpret. You have to remember who would have been reading this book over the ages. Some of them would have been, uh, been Issachar's descendants, right? it seems to be saying that he'd pick choice land and then he'd get comfortable and he'd end up being enslaved, okay? We know in the book of Judges that was a component of a lot of them, that they didn't drive out all the Canaanites and so there were battle and wars and you may remember the story of, um, of Gideon that there was this cycle and so a judge would raise up and uh, knock out the enemies and then the enemies would come in in the days of their children and, and establish power again. It's probably a reference to that, but we don't have a ton of information to really nail it down. Verse 16, Dan. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that the rider falls backwards. And so what does he say about Dan? He says he's basically going to be effective in battle, but also crafty. Not so much like a lion, like Judah was, but more like a serpent, okay? Now, it's interesting that Samson would be a judge from the line of Dan. And notice that it says um, that he shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Judge there. Don't think white wig and, and a modern judge. Think deliverer. That's what the word means, like the book of Judges. What it seems to be recognizing here is very much tied to Samson because Samson was terribly selfish and yet his victory against the Philistines was to the benefit of all of Israel. Okay? It wasn't just Dan and the Danites who enjoyed this victory, but Samson's victory was huge. You may remember that in his death, he killed tons of Philistines. Then it says in verse 18, I wait for your salvation, O Lord. And this has been so mysterious to commentators, because it's almost like uh, Jacob interrupts himself here, and he pauses just to pray. And he just says, God, save us, okay? Now, this is so mysterious that some people actually believe that the Antichrist character that we get to in the New Testament must be somehow related to the tribe of Dan. In fact, in the book of Revelation, Dan is the tribe that's missing. Now, before you get weirded out by that, remember that the 12 tribes are not 12 anymore, right? Because now we have Manasseh and Ephraim. And so when they number them, they always number as 12 and somebody always gets left off, okay? The Danites are also the first ones to embrace idolatry. It's in their towns where the golden calves are set up that Israel worships. So there's some things going on. There's some factors. But here's another interpretation that I'm drawn to. There are six of these prophecies given, one to each child except that Simeon and Levi are together. This is the halfway mark, okay? Six of them have been given, six still to come, and in the middle of it is this recognition that God is the Savior. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Okay. He knows that it doesn't matter the strength or the power, the weakness. All of this comes down to God's faithfulness and his promises. Verse 19, raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. If that sounds repetitive, it's because it's all a play on the name Gad. Okay, And basically he says, Gad will Gad Gad, and he will Gad their heels. That's what this verse actually says. Okay, um, But the point here about Gad, simply put, is that he's going to have a rough time in the book of Judges, but he's going to come out victorious. And then Asher, it says in verse 20, his food shall be rich and he shall yield royal delicacies. I know you've probably never been to the land of Israel. It's a very fruitful place. Um, Asher's territory may have just been more fruitful than the others. It may be in that second line that there's a reference also to them being enslaved because it doesn't say royal delicacies for the king of Judah. It might be royal delicacies for their foreigner that they start being the rich ones and they end up being just the table setters, okay? Then Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns, just fruitfulness is what's talked about there. And then we get to Joseph, which is the second longest one. And it says here, Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run all over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him and harassed him severely. Do you notice here how it's talking in past tense? Right now, we're just talking about Joseph, not Joseph's descendants. And what he says is the archers were constantly trying to take Joseph out, right? In fact, in the book of Proverbs, archery is a symbol for slander, which is a big thing that Joseph has faced over his life. Yet verse 24 his bow remained unmoved his arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob from there is his shepherd the stone of Israel by the god of your father who will help you by the almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above okay so it looks at the joseph's life and it sees that as a paradigm for his children that they'll struggle But God will be their shepherd. God will be their strength. God will be their rock. And here we get the blessings. Listen to how many times it says blessings. With the blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouch beneath, blessings of the breast and of the womb, the blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents up to the bounties of everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart for his brothers. If I remember right, in Joseph's story right there, we get half, of the use of the word blessing in the entire book of Genesis. Okay, why? One, we already saw that Joseph gets the blessing, the double portion for his sons, but more importantly, are you seeing a pattern of blessing here? Jacob blesses Pharaoh, Jacob blesses Joseph's sons, Jacob blesses all of his sons, and we get to Joseph, and bless, 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 bless. We're, we're seeing the consummation of what was promised, that God will bless Abraham's descendants, okay? It's being emphasized here by the author intentionally. Now, the last thing I want to point out here, it says, up to the bounties of everlasting hills, may they be on the head of Joseph on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. Now, that's another hard sentence, but it's very possible there it's referring with his brow and his head to a crown. And that's intriguing because when the kingdom does split because of Solomon's disobedience, because of the things that go down with Solomon, his son, Rehoboam, takes over the two tribes of Israel, but God gives the ten tribes to Jeroboam and the kingdom splits. Guess which tribe Jeroboam's from? Ephraim. Okay? And so this is all being pointed to here all the way back in the book of Genesis. Now, it may be easy to say, well, doesn't that just prove that Genesis was written in the days of David? It's not that easy, especially because of the book of Exodus. And we'll see this as we get into it. Exodus is full of tremendously accurate historical data. Okay, not the type of stuff that you could have guessed in the days of David. We're talking about 600 years before David in this text right here, when Israel enters into Egypt, 600 years prior. And when we get into the book of Exodus, they're going to talk about the geography of somebody who knows the geography of Exodus, linguistically of somebody who knows that timeline's language. Okay, and so here we'd have a tendency to say that Genesis was written later, but Exodus is clearly not, and they go hand in hand, okay? Um, So, final son, the last one, the youngest, is Benjamin. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf, in the morning devouring prey, and at evening dividing the spoil. And from the line of Benjamin, we get constant heroes, just one after another, okay? Um, It's Benjamin's descendant uh, Ehud, who's this left-handed assassin, assassin that deals with King Eglon. It's Benjamin who trains up an entire tribe of left-handed sling throwers who can hit a, you know, a target at 30 yards. I can't remember how it says it in the Hebrew, but it's basically the idea. Trained military. It's Benjamin and Jonathan who are, who are in, you know, uh, sorry, it's uh, Saul and his son Jonathan who are the leaders of Israel that lead, honestly, a lot of victories. They all come from this tribe of Benjamin. So verse 28, all these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him, bless, bless, bless again. Then he commanded them and said to him, I am being gathered to my people, bury me with my fathers in the cave that's in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that's in the field at Machpelah, in the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham brought with his field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. Then they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife. There I buried Leah. Now, why isn't Rachel buried there? Because she died in childbirth a long way away, okay? And carrying a corpse across the eastern desert is just not a thing you do, okay? Uh, that field and the cave that's in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed And he breathed his last and he was gathered to his people. Even here, the author has been building towards this. So, first, he bowed on his bed, and then he drew his feet into his bed, and now he draws his feet into his bed and he breathes his last. Okay? And so here, he finally dies. Chapter 50, then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. Remember, that was a promise that Jacob was given by God before he left the land, that Joseph would be there to close his eyes. And so he's intimately right here at the death of his father. Verse 2, Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it. That is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him 70 days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I've found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I'm about to uh, die in my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan. There you shall bury me. Now, therefore, let me please go up and bury my father. Then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there they went up with him, both chariots and horsemen, and it was a very great company. When they came to the threshing for of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with very great and grievous lamentations, and made mourning for his father seven days." When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Etad, they said, this is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore, the place was named Abel Mizerem. It's beyond the Jordan and Abel Mizerem means mourning of Egypt. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave at the field of Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought, which the field of Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. Now, I want you to notice the reaction that Egypt had to the passing of Jacob. It's overwhelming, right? It's not just that he goes through the standard Egyptian practice of a bombing that takes 40 days, but included in that 40 days and beyond is 70 days of national mourning, okay? The flag at half mass for months. Okay? And then it's not just Jacob's family that goes and mourns for him at the funeral, but all of the leadership of Egypt, all of Pharaoh's counselors, all of the elders of Egypt, they all go and they go through the practice of mourning. Why? Do they care about Jacob? No. They care about Joseph. Right? It's out of respect for Joseph that they go through all of this practice because Jacob matters to Joseph. Okay? So they do just as Jacob had called them to do in verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil we did to him. So their thinking is here, okay, now that dad is gone, maybe now Joseph is going to get his revenge. And there's precedent for them to think that way because that was how Esau threatened Jacob. Esau said, as soon as Isaac is dead, I'm going to kill my brother." Right? And so their thinking is, maybe just out of respect for dad so that it wouldn't give him a heart attack, he, he delayed the real plan. And now, now he's going to take us out. Verse 16, so they sent a message to Joseph. They don't go in person at first, saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of, your, of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. And so they concoct this plan. It's possible, I'll grant you, it's possible that Jacob actually passed on this message. That's not how the story reads, does it? They come up with a plan and they think, okay, the only thing keeping us safe was dad. So let's say, hey, dad's last will and testament includes don't kill us. Okay, that's their plan. And it says here that Joseph wept. Why does he weep? Because there's not an ounce of revenge left in him. He can't believe that they're still afraid of him. Remember, this is after he, uh, he had wept and embraced them and said, hey, God has done this all for good. After he had been providing for their families for years and years, this is, you know, at least 17 years later. And they still are afraid, and so he weeps. They come to him in verse 18. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring, about, uh, bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And so here we get even clearer of a statement of how Joseph sees this story. What you meant for evil, God has used for good. Now, we talked about that in connection of the cross being the ultimate expression of that, but I want you to read it in the audience of the book of Exodus, okay? In those who walk out of Egypt this whole being in Egypt thing is going to look evil pretty soon, right? In fact, he tells the story so carefully to show that it's not Joseph's fault that now Israel is enslaved, it's God's plan. And he reminds them in the midst of this that even in the midst of Joseph's story, it looks awful, it looks like evil, but God has a plan and he's carrying it out, okay? That's being reminded and emphasized here so that Israel in their own circumstances, as they're constantly complaining, as we'll see in Exodus and Numbers can be reminded of the fact that God is at work, that this is by the plan, that this is his intention. And so he says in verse 21, do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Now one last thing, we're going to close in just a minute, but I want you to notice something new. What happens between Abraham's two sons? Separation permanently. What happens between Jake, or Isaac's two sons? Separation permanently permanently with Joseph being sold into slavery it looks like that whole thing's at risk and yet they are reunited and fully reconciled okay there's a lot of patterns in the book of Genesis this one is put to rest right here and that's an important one to make right because these are the fathers the founding fathers of the 12 tribes the unity of Israel comes from these men and so there's this division and there's this tension. Can you relate to that probably? Can you imagine what it would be like to be from a nation of the 12 tribes, to be rubbing shoulders against one another, to be having problems and have to remember, no, we're family, right? It's easier to do in a household. It's hard enough to do in a household. It's even harder to do in a nation, right? And so all of this is very intentional. And so it finishes here with the death of Joseph, right? To kind of close his story out, verse 22 So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. Interesting that it's the Egyptian ideal that I mentioned earlier. Verse 23, Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. So it tells us two things here. One, he not only sees his children's children, but his children's children's children, okay? Which is a tremendous blessing. Anyone with grandkids will tell you how great that is. So can you even imagine great, great grandkids? Um, but the second thing it mentions here is that he follows his father's practice and adopts Manasseh's sons as his own, okay? And then it says in verse twenty-three or 24, and Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, swear saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. And so he, like his father, says, it's a little different. He doesn't say, take me to Canaan and bury me there. He says, when we all leave Egypt, take me with you. Which, once again, is, what is it? It's a testimony of faith. Joseph says, someday God's going to do what he promised and lead us out of here. When you go, take my bones with you and bury me in the land. And so even his death becomes an act of faith. And we'll see in the book of Exodus that that's exactly what happens. So, verse 26, Joseph died being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Okay? So I want you to notice, we see a lot of resolve in this passage. Old patterns are broken. Old problems are solved. The blessings of Abraham we're seeing are abundantly fulfilled. Be fruitful and multiply. Multiply. In fact, I forgot to mention this, but when it says um, that Ephraim will be blessed, the word there it uses is swarm, that they will swarm. That goes all the way back to the first creation of life, the swarms that will swarm in the ocean on day five, okay? And so there's this big tying up that's happening, but notice at the same time, what's the last word of the book? Egypt, okay? And so Genesis doesn't end at the end. It's a to be continued. It it recognizes the fact that the promises of God are not yet fulfilled. That yes, Joseph and even Judah, but there is one to come, that yes, You're safe in Egypt, but that's not where you'll end, right? It's all looking beyond. It's all looking forward to what God's going to do. But at the same time now, we have a foundation. We have a foundation of the character of this God who is called Israel. We have this foundation of the beginnings of the fulfillment of these promises. And we even have some sharpening of the lines. What God is doing is clearer in chapter 49 than it was all the way back in chapter 3. But it's not yet brought to pass. So let's pray and we'll close for the night. God, that ranks about 20 or almost 21 hours of walking through the book of Genesis. And I thank you, Lord, that personally I have benefited from studying your word and I trust that others have here too. I pray, Lord, that, um, that as we read devotionally, as we hear sermons set in the book of Genesis, that we would be able to recall and remember this context. As we read other places of the Bible, I pray that we'd be able to look back to the beginning and know the world as it was intended, see the world as it uh, came about through the fall, and see the world as you're promising to set it right in the coming Messiah. We thank you for this book. We thank you for your spirit that teaches us. We thank you for one another and for this evening. We pray that you would bless us just as you have blessed Israel. In Jesus' name and on Jesus' behalf, amen.